Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk about the tools we use at home, both for repair and for our free time projects, as well as the benefits of corded drills, tidy workbenches, and low temp soldering. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 92, Garage Gear, October 1st, 2015. So Jeff, is your garage an immaculate space, uh, stocked with state-of-the-art toys? Are you a mad scientist in your limited free time? Uh, No. Not even close? Not even close. Small schemes? No, I, uh, Maybe just to take over the neighborhood to start with? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I, I, my collection is, is a pitiful, or my garage is a pitiful collection of, of old tools. Uh, I mean, when I go for my electric drill, I start with the, uh, the old electric drill that, uh, where the batteries barely charge anymore. Mm. And uh, I've got, I think, three batteries sitting around that I rotate trying, you know, on their last leg. <laughs> so one for your drill and one for your cyclotron? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So so hopefully I've remembered ahead of time to charge something up because they don't hold a charge long. And if I don't, then I, I can run them for a few minutes and then have to quickly rotate to the next uh, battery. And uh, just, So my you're backup. You're doing that on purpose so you don't have to do any housework. <laughs> uh, I wish that was the case. Uh, <laughs> but I do have... A, an electric drill that was a, uh, a gift to me when I was, I think, in college or just barely out of college. So it's, it's uh, many, many years old, but the sucker still works. And there have been a few times that I thought I had burned out the motor, but it keeps chugging along. So as long as I'm within, uh, within shouting distance of an outlet, I can, I can make it work. But uh, no, I, I must admit my garage is far from a, uh, you know, a state-of-the-art laboratory. Yeah. No, no Frankenstein towers to uh, attract lightning and anything during a storm. <laughs> no, no, just just a lot of uh, stuff that that you know I'm always going to get to, and uh, you know the the projects over the years keep piling up, and uh, I'm just about to the point where I've got to close my eyes and pitch it and say, I, you know, it it isn't going to happen. <laughs> you too. Yeah, it's always a sad <laughs> yes, moment when you have to purge them. <laughs> Why would you ever purge tools? Oh, tools never, no. And if Jeffs are really that old, I'm sure you can get, uh, you know, some hipster value for them on eBay. Mm-hmm. Just go, go so. nuts on Black Friday, watch the sales, <laughs> pay attention to the reviews, don't buy any of the crazy crap that, uh, you know, those dog bone wrenches that are supposed to fit any kind of socket. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of which, if the best advice I could ever give somebody when buying tools is go to Home Depot and possibly even Lowe's maybe a week or two after Black Friday because it seems like Home Depot keeps trying to make Black Friday happen, and they can't. <laughs> and so you go there, and you get all of these ridiculous deals they've put forward, and you can buy stuff for, you know, I've bought clamps, you know, a dozen clamps for basically five, six bucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You can never have um, too many clamps. No, honestly, you can't. Yeah, no such thing. No such thing as too many clamps. All shapes, all varieties, just go for it. Mm-hmm. You always need another clamp. But their Black Friday deals are not great. And then if you can get them when they're trying to get rid of all of their inventory, it's it's perfect. 
I got my second compressor that way. <laughs> so so Black Friday is coming up then. We're about this timing. If if people are scheduling ahead, this should be about right because uh, that all happens. That's the Friday after Thanksgiving, right? Mm-hmm. So we're so you want to go the first week in December when it looks depressing, <laughs> or or hit up Cyber Monday, which is hopefully better than Amazon's July uh, extravaganza. You you didn't want the fifty five gallon barrel of lube? Oh, I mean, oh. you know, I'm not a mechie. I don't need to grease anything up. We're gonna make that happen. <laughs> That's not gonna we improve my efficiency if I grease my circuit board. It's not that kind of lube. No. <laughs> <laughs> So, in case the listener hasn't guessed yet, uh, we're talking about uh, outfitting your garage or your home lab today on this episode. And uh, we did talk a few episodes back about tools of the trade, uh, but there we had to focus more about work when you're not spending your own money, um, where you can get fancy things like, uh, you know, hot air rework stations for BJs that have fancy optics so you can see the balls of the chip and place it perfectly on your PCB board. Uh, today, you know, you're going to be the weekend warrior. You'll be a little more budget conscious because the money's coming out of your pocket. And, uh, you know, maybe you'll even have more of a connection to the gear because it's yours. You own it. And you're not just renting it while you work for a company. Mm -hmm. And to that point, the best hot air rework station for a garage is simply a hot air gun. One with different size nozzles. No, I mean like a H, uh, Home Depot. Paint stripping. Class hot air. Yeah. Yes, so, something that puts out just an insane number of BTUs without any restraint whatsoever. Well, and that's just a nice tool to have anyway. Yeah, agreed. But, I mean, for non-precision work, you can basically heat up your entire board and sweep off every single uh, surface mount device. Or you can do delicate BGA replacement. <laughs> I don't know about BGA replacement. You have a very steady hand. Or just a lot of alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> or just, you know, fun things that need a heat gun. You know, maybe uh, can you cure an epoxy with it if it needs to speed up the cure time? Probably. I think uh, doesn't UV help those? It help cure epoxy as well. But uh, the hot air gun, I've actually used it to for w really thick gauge wires that uh, it's almost impractical to use. You can't get enough thermal transfer with a soldering iron. I've actually done a fair amount of soldering um for like you know eight gauge wire you know s stuff in the order of that uh with a hot air gun mm -hmm. yes and then there's also the ever-present um wow now i'm totally blanking the black stuff, the heat shrink there we go oh yeah. yes yes gotta have that stuff i've i've used that before doing wiring in a car Mm -hmm. Well, and the, the hot air gun's also good for um, uh, thawing gutters in the winter. Well, it's okay for thawing gutters in the winter. Um, mm -hmm. And what they're actually designed for, removing paint. What? Like it just melts off your wall and runs down? If I put a can under there, am I going to be able to collect it? No, no, no. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, I know a while back it used to be used for removing paint. I've actually seen somebody use a modern IR lamp, hand, like a hand assembly that's basically a, uh, um, it looks like a tuned toaster pointed at the wood. And I couldn't believe that it worked, but effectively he point, you know, he just, he roasted the wood for probably 10, 20 seconds and then took a five in one and scraped all the paint off, you know, like 150 years worth of paint. It's amazing. Mm hmm. <laughs> 
it, it, it would have been an infomercial. I wouldn't have believed it if I had not seen it. That sort of process is exactly why I got a heat gun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't quite 150 years. It was 100 years worth of paint um, and not well done paint. No. <laughs> you know, they just kind of glob it in the corners. And so you, you take a knife to the corner and it cracks and it's like, oh, well, now there's a void there. Yeah, that sort of thing. They work. They're great. And you can do BGA work. Exactly. So I'm still a little confused, Brian. When you say you're doing BGA work, uh, just just how much time does it take to get the uh, the right distance right so you're getting the right heat to the to the board? Well, it's not a question of does it work. It's how long does it work for. <laughs> okay. And I've actually never found that out. Okay. Um, All right. Well, I, ha- I have used uh, heat guns before when I was trying to put a – Say a ninety degree bend in in uh, Lexan sheet or some sort of you know mm-hmm. uh, acrylic sheet, and uh, so you apply a little heat and uh, put it over a board, some sort of straight edge that will uh, provide the uh, bend that you want, and uh, just apply a little pressure. And, and uh, if done correctly, if you don't melt it too much, you get a nice a nice uh, clean curve bend in the in the plastic. So can we agree that uh, heat guns are the new vice grips? No. Mm-mm. I don't know. Vice grips are pretty uh, handy. <laughs> it's going to take something a little better than that to, to un, uh, unseat the vice grip. You can hold things together or you can bury a nail as deep as I want. Vice grips. Yep. Uh, where are we going with this episode? Yeah, we're, going, we're, going, we're just touching everything. We're, we're free form. It's, uh, I don't know, <laughs> slam poetry, but podcasting. Slam podcasting. <laughs> Right. Well, so a, a tool that I would think that uh, regardless of your engineering major that w- you'd find useful is a, uh, is a Dremel tool. Uh, really? Because, because next to a drill, I would have to say that the, my, my second most handy tool is, is Dremel because I can use that for cutting things off. I can use it for sharpening. I can use it for uh, opening up a hole. I can use it for drilling. Uh, I, I seem to always be finding uses for my Dremel tool. See, and uh, okay, so with which bits? Because I bought into, I think I'm on my second Dremel. Mm-hmm. I bought into the hype, and I was, I've been fairly disappointed with how useful it is because generally, anytime you want to do any detail work, it seems like the, the ability of bits to grab the material and move your hand is, you know, counterproductive to doing any detail work mm-hmm. yeah so you can't you it, it the form factor makes you think that you can use like a pencil and you definitely you cannot no no it's, no. It, it, it's like you've got a, a grip like you grip a hammer yeah and, and trying to use things that way but i i will admit that the most useful one i have are the cutoff tools you know the little the little round discs that are uh either ceramic or sandpaper depending on you know, grit have grit on one side or both sides, depending on which one you've got. And uh, boy, I use those all the time for opening things up and cutting things out, like jars and. Well, you know, if I if I've got, I'm trying to put a, you know, a, a add something to an enclosure, or I need a, a pass through mm-hmm. in a in a piece to get through it. You know, the, uh, I use that a lot. Or if I've got a rough edge on a on a metal piece, I'll use that to grind it down and and. Uh, Get rid of the uh, rough edge. I, I will say the. Uh, I think the Dremel is far more useful. I've got a little um, 
it's almost like a router table attachment mm-hmm. for my Dremel. So your your the Dremel bit is coming up out of this little itty bitty. It's about a you know six by six inch table. Mm-hmm. So you're moving the workpiece and not the tool, and then the Dremel is just it, it's it's awesome. It's, and it, it eliminates that whole having to maneuver the thing and try and use it like a pencil and you know at grabbing things and that you were talking about, Brian. I should maybe start doing more enclosure work. I don't think I've used my Dremel twice since I got it. Hmm. I've never used it for enclosure work. I've used it to wreck plenty of projects. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, I don't know, maybe, maybe I have too many tools. <laughs> but I always feel like I'm reaching for something else before I go to the Dremel. Yeah, I, I basically have decided that for a lot of the things that Jeff is describing, maybe I'm not doing detail work enough. I'm going directly to an angle grinder. Mm-hmm. And I'll agree, the angle grinder, if if it'll do the job, I think it's nine times out of ten the better tool than the Dremel. Yeah. Uh, but de- then again... It depends I mean, on the size, right? Well, yeah, yeah. If you're mo- your opening has to be a foot, <laughs> which is, well, you know, or, you know, at least in three or four inches. Well, I mean, what's, the di- what's the working area of a three-and-a-half-inch disc? Is it a four-inch disc or three-and-a-half? Uh, they come in multiple sizes. Um, Google will tell us. Yeah. <laughs> um, they make four and a half, and I'm pretty sure that's the one I've got. Okay. But, um, I think there's a smaller one too. Well, I mean, in any event, I mean, I have found myself using the Dremel tool and literally looked at four applications that would work with, uh, an angle grinder and literally found myself going, I'm an idiot popping out the angle grinder and use it, you know, run it for three and a half seconds and we're done. Well, and I think there's a, a, a big difference between the angle grinder and the Dremel. The Dremel is really more of a hobbyist tool that's meant to do a lot of very precise things. And the angle grinder is really a professional's tool for cutting. And grinding. Yeah. And that's one of the bigger trade-offs, too, of this episode, going for garage gear. Um, you know, you're, you're always making trade-offs because you're going on a more limited budget and you can't buy mm-hmm. the perfect tool for every every job you're going to do, at least not all at once. you got to slowly build that up over time. Mm-hmm. So you, you got to look at what kind of work you're doing and do you need the professional tool or can you get by with something that's good enough? Or you have to budget into every one of your projects the uh, budget for the professional tool. Yeah, well, what is this, a professional, uh, you know, <laughs> work environment here? I'm just throwing <laughs> some stuff together on the weekend. I don't budget for anything. I got to go to the hardware store six times. Well, yeah. <laughs> so w- let me ask Jeff this. Jeff, if you had the choice between a Dremel and a Rotozip, what would you use? Uh, I have both, and I tend to go to the uh, – Dremel, and that's mostly because the Rotozip is a fairly new uh, tool in my arsenal. I uh, I inherited it from my uh, from my father, and I've used it a time or two for cutting drywall when I needed to put an opening in drywall. But other than that, I haven't. I just when I think of I I have a need, I'm usually going to the Dremel first, just mm-hmm. because I've used it for for many more years. And it's a little bit softer than your plasma torch. <laughs> it's it's a little more gentle than my plasma torch. Yes. <laughs> now, a plasma torch would be fun to have. I don't uh, I don't have one, but I've uh, I've had the opportunity to use uh, 
I took a welding course at a high school once and we used, you know, the plasma torches for cutting and that kind of stuff. And boy, is that a lot of fun. Yeah, I've seen those in action. They're they're pretty cool. But it was from someone who has a very advanced uh, home garage setup, mm-hmm. doing a lot of fabricating and you know custom work. So I'll, I'll throw one out here, and it, it's not really a tool, but I've found it pretty awesome. It's uh, this item I heard about from a friend and bought off Amazon. It's a system called the Two by Four Basics, and it's pretty much a template for building your own uh, workbench and shelves. Mm-hmm. It's, it's super cool. It's these big plastic legs and they have the screw holes in there already. And all you do is, you know, get the two by four you want for the length and the depth. And it, it saves on your wood cost. It's pretty durable. It came out very level. Um, and I was able to assemble it solo with only a, a couple of clamps that we talked about before. You can never have too many. Um, and it, it gives you a couple options in the instructions on different ways you can set up your bench and, you know, how much support you need. Mm-hmm. It, it, it came out looking pretty sharp. I really like my bench. I can take a picture and post it for uh, the listeners here for the show notes. For our new segment, Workbench, workbench of the Week. Uh, no, I feel like that's <laughs> been done before. It's so, so passe yesterday, yesterday, yesteryears, podcasting. But, um, yeah, so, you know, it's always cool to roll your own bench, but, I mean – you know, I just needed something to throw up in the garage real quick. And instead of going and buying a bunch of four by four and, you know, for the put legs and figuring out what screws and everything I need, which I guess is half the fun if you're into that. I just wanted something up that I could use to work on as I did other stuff in the house. And two by four basics are great. And if you're looking for a top, like a work surface, um, I have recently discovered you can get a butcher block from, um, Ikea at a reasonable a reasonable price. Oh, it's at a reasonable price. That's cool. Because I've seen Sears will sell you Butcher's Block too, but you got to pay out the nose for it. No, it, it was pretty reasonable. Uh, I should put a price to reasonable, but uh, it's the cheapest I've ever seen it. Hmm. Yeah, a nice Butcher's Block would be ideal. But uh, in a pinch, I have um, a sheet of MDF that I screw down on top of the 2x4s. And that, that's holding up pretty nicely. Uh, about a year later now. I'm actually using a welded steel um, pipe desk. Uh, I don't know what the stock is called. Jeff, you can probably help. Uh, it looks like two inch by two inch steel. Is that a standard? Uh, is this is this L? No, it's square. Oh, sure, sure. So so square steel comes in a variety of sizes, but you know from inch. You know, inch, inch and a half, two inch, two and a half square. That's all available. Okay. So it feels like about two inch by two inch. And I got it as a company was dumping all of their lab desks. Um, I pulled it out of a dumpster and it was, it's been with me for 15 years. Hmm. Well, and that's a great way to get tools, uh, good tools, cheap is when, Mm -hmm. you know, companies are dumping stuff, especially things like workbenches. Um, um, a lot of, you know, basic tools like screwdrivers and things like that, you know, the companies are buying way better stuff than you can get at your, your Lowe's Home Depot or wherever. Um, Mm. but you know, sometimes. Uh, I don't know about that for necessarily for hand tools. Maybe if you need ESD related stuff or high voltage, uh, rated equipment, but we always just run down to the hardware store when we need stuff. You're right. I think what, uh, 
for the type of tools you're talking about, Carmen, I, I think you're right. But uh, what Adam's talking about, I think, is the hard to get things like a, that's true. You know, like a workbench or like uh, lab chairs and stuff like that. You know, professional environment stuff that's really expensive to buy new, but then goes for pennies in the dollar on the auction block. Well, and I'd even say hand tools. If you know, a, a lot of companies do buy Snap On and brands like that. Um, which even if it's a 10 year old snap on wrench, it's still, um, I would, I would say better than what you're going to get at Home Depot. Them's fighting some words. You know, it, once again, that's a, that's a professional tool and it's, uh, it's in a little different environment than, um, like an electronics, uh, office or lab type situation, more of a production type or, um, heavy maintenance type situation where they'd be uh, spending the money on those kinds of tools. So if I guess we could split this up into mechanical and uh, electrical type tools, uh, what's the best place if you're looking to cheaply outfit your lab for uh, with uh, mechanical tools? Harbor Freight. I, I would agree with Harbor Freight. Any others before we move on to Harbor Freight? Well, the, but that's a that's a place to do it cheaply. Whether that's a a good use of your money, yeah, remains to be seen. If you're someone who's just getting started and you have to buy, you know. If you're starting from scratch, you know, maybe you have a, a screwdriver in a junk drawer somewhere, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's about the extent of your DIY, then yes, for sure. Go to Harbor Freight, get the 130-piece or 200-piece tool kit and, and start there so you at least have a basis. Um, the Harbor Freight stuff, you, you got to watch what you'd buy. I don't think I'd ever buy like a Sawzall from Harbor Freight, um, but their hand tools are pretty decent quality. The screwdrivers are fine. The uh, the combination wrenches I bought, I mean, I don't really use combination wrenches all that much. I'm grabbing sockets, but, you know, if I can, um, you know, if you're not going to use them day in and day out and just constantly beat on them, they're, they'll hold up just fine for a long time. And you can, you know, upgrade as you need to as you break a tool or find you're using something more than something else. Yeah, and but and the thing to keep in mind is that uh, in this dichotomy between amateur and hobbyist tools and, and professional tools is, I think the numbers are like the average drill is used, what like four minutes or fourteen minutes, something like that. I mean, it's a, there's an awful lot of tools out there in the world that are bought that don't get used for more than an hour, and so there's no sense for the manufacturers to put great expense into something. You know, people aren't going to buy four hundred dollar drills just to go hang pictures. <laughs> uh, at, at the same time, you, you do want something that lasts. I, all I can, you know, when it came to uh, my buying, you know, tools and wrenches, that kind of thing, this was for me many, you know, a number of years ago, uh, many decades ago. And so I went and bought craftsmen and here we are 35 years later and they're still working fine. And I guess they still have a lifetime guarantee. I've never had to take anything back because I haven't had any fail so far. The, yeah. ba- the batteries are still good. No, the batteries I have had to replace batteries, <laughs> but but no, yeah, none of my wrenches are are battery powered. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard mixed things about Craftsman these days. I mean, I've had good luck with them too, but I heard uh, you know for a while they were outsourcing to China and getting cheaper made stuff. Uh, oh, I'm sure. I've heard rumors they're going back to U.S. made, but I have not confirmed them myself. It was on a blog uh, I was reading a while ago. But so I just I just went to the Harbor Freight's uh, website to verify that to at least our U.S. audience um, that it is available in every state. 
And I've never seen a website that was designed to look like a Sunday coupon. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is well, and that's what you're getting at Harbor Freight. It, it's a Sunday coupon. Oh yeah, if you're going to Harbor oh Freight without a, a stack of free coupons, although you can only use one per thing for free items. But uh, yeah, if you're not getting there without a free screwdriver set or work light or something, you're doing it wrong. This is the most appalling website I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So it does look like it's available in most states, so we're not talking about something regional because uh, I would mention Northern Hydraulics or Northern Tool. Uh, Northern Tool is also national now, or at least Is it national? Uh, I thought it was just Upper Midwest, but it's it's uh, it's it's a competitor to Harbor Freight with slightly better tools. I mean, in the same business, but Harbor Freight has traditionally been a discount tool retailer. Yeah. Um, yeah, Northern Tool tends to carry some slightly better tools. Uh, at least for a while, all their hand tools had a, a hand, um, lifetime warranty as well. Harbor Freight will still do that for you too, the lifetime warranty. Oh. I, I think it depends on the certain brands. I think the Pittsburgh might be and something else, but I don't know. You have to check on the, the box when you go. But yeah, with all this stuff, you can get some good stuff at Harbor Freight. You know, like we've been talking about basic hand tools, but also... Um, you know, while you're waiting for a sale on the internet or Fourth of July or Father's Day or one of these big things to get your fancy gear wrench or Snap-on brands, um, you know, Harbor Freight will suffice. And actually, the uh, the big red from Harbor Freight, the the toolboxes, the tool chests, the big rolling ones you'd put in the garage or a, a workshop or something, those have been consistently rated the best bang for your buck. Unless you're looking to spend a couple thousand dollars on tool chests, um, there's a you know, if you Google Harbor Freight tool chest reviews, and we'll link them into the show notes, uh, they've gotten the best reviews uh, compared to, you know, the, the Craftsman brand, the um, Lowe's, Home Depot, and uh, I think Tractor Supply maybe, too, is in there. Um, but, yeah, the starting lineup, you know, cheap sheet metal ones from everywhere else are, are kind of garbage. But Harbor Freight's got a really mm-hmm. nice chest, and I have it in my garage, and that thing is built like a tank. Right. And that, that is the big red one, I would like to clarify. They also have a brown slash gray one for like half the price, and it's it's junk. That one will fall apart. Right. Well, uh, the the experience I've had with those, those tool cabinets is that the value of the tool cabinet is directly related to the amount of time you're willing to spend maintaining it in its organization. Mm-hmm. And so it – Obviously, when you get it and it's brand new and you, you spend your time labeling each drawer and you make sure your, your screwdrivers are all aligned in the drawer and that all the wrenches go in increasing size, then that's beautiful. You can find what you're looking for. But when you're, you're scrambling trying to get the, uh, you know, uh, install a new sump pump and you can't find the fitting, you know, you've got a fitting and you're running to find the wrench and you take it downstairs, you come back upstairs, things get, tend to get a little scattered. And then you're in a hurry to put it all away before you have to leave on a trip. And and if you don't spend that time consistently keeping that toolbox neat, then what you end up is a a toolbox with a lot of drawers with a lot of junk in it that you you know is useless to you because you can't find it. And on that note, I would recommend everyone check out Adam Savage's uh, first order tool retrievability videos. Um, it's basically just point on the solution to it, which is get rid of your drawers. If you want to have tool chests, make them such that all of your tools are visible. Mm-hmm. Personal styles. I love me some drawers. 
but I, I'm, I'm <laughs> anal retentive and keep them organized. So when I'm at work and I'm, you know, hovered over a board, I'll, I'll reach over, open a drawer and grab exactly what I need and close it. And I, I keep them that way. I wish I worked in your lab. <laughs> I'm the I'm the rare breed. I'm the electrical unicorn or the, you know, <laughs> the weekend warrior unicorn. All my stuff is yeah. in, I know where everything is. Right. So let me let me try this uh thought experiment. I don't know for sure about you Carmen, but my desk is usually filed by Stratus. You know, <laughs> th- things start to pile up and I know approximately how deep in the pile it is. But you can't see it from the top of the desk. So it, that may account for my my storage style with my tools. What does your desk look like at work? Um, still pretty neat. <laughs> okay. I, I, I do have piles, but I am not a hoarder. And I will go through and purge them once in a while when it starts to look pretty messy. Bless you. <laughs> and if I have a slow day at work, I will. I we have special ESD mat cleaner, and I will uh, spray my mat down and wipe it off, and you know reorganize all my jumper leads and everything. And yeah, mm-hmm. I have first order retrievability, but it's a different uh, different method than Adam Savage. Mm-hmm. Well, I am not as organized, and my desk is usually covered with four or five boxes from DigiKey and. Uh, half a dozen circuit boards, populated and unpopulated. Mm-hmm. So you can tell where I am in a work week based on how many circuit boards are populated. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like, Carmen, you're kind of in the minority here. Um, I'm with Jeff on the strata. Um, I keep one, like, four square feet of my desk clear of papers, unless I'm actively working on them. Otherwise, yeah, it goes into a big pile. <laughs> oh no i uh and i you know there's you can go on the you know some various subreddits uh workbenches and battle stations and look at people's setups and you, you get a good mix of anal retentive people like myself who keep a nice tight organized bench and the strata as you guys are calling it mm-hmm. and there's there's one we'll link in here i i found this i don't even remember how i found it years ago on the internet um you know it's called tips from jeff dutman dutman and it he built a house and set up his dream lab in the basement. He took a nice 50 foot by, you know, 12 foot space and made a nice long, long workshop. And he goes through in this post and talks about how high you want to size your bench and where you'd want outlets and, you know, his methods for organization. And it, it's pretty cool. He uses like sawed off milk cartons for big electrical parts. He scavenged out of really old equipment. Uh, nice. Nice looking bookcase he built himself, and he also says you can't ever have enough clamps. So I like his use of uh, um, milk cut, milk cartons to collect parts. Yeah, um, but I hate his uh, those little rectangular drawers. Mm. Oh, with the that he okay the uh, lazy Susan one. Well, that's interesting. I haven't seen that before, so. I'm, I'm kind of taking that in. Oh, we but have one of those at work for, for the listeners. Since we're talking about a picture here. It's um, this big stack of like three storage units on top of a lazy Susan. And you can spin it. And there's about a million little drawers that you can keep resistors, capacitors, ICs, diodes, whatever in. Um, and I, I actually, we use them at work for the big communal park bins. And they're they're awesome. And as somebody who grew up in the Midwest and, you know, we effectively inherited my grandfather's 
tools and those little rectangular bins are just where you put all of your crap whenever you clean off your bench. Oh, I'll organize this later. It goes into this drawer. Mm-hmm. This vaguely, these parts vaguely look similar. Let's put them in here. Yeah. Jud- judging by his pictures, though, he seems to be in my camp of being, uh, you know, anal retentive and having everything nice and neat. So I, yeah. I can't imagine his boxes unorganized, but his is a, a pretty advanced home garage. Um, you know, if he's building a custom in his basement when he gets a new house. But there, there are some cool things in there, and it's something I never thought about too. When he's talking about um, lighting, you know, he said he had big tracks of fluorescent lighting, and then he learned it from the guys building his house. They also included, um, you know, incandescent bulbs in there as well, in between the strips of fluorescent to kind of fill in, so you don't get that flicker that fluorescent lights will give you. Right, mm-hmm. and that I, you know, seem wow. That's one of those things you just never would think about when you're setting some stuff up in your garage or your, you know, your office or wherever you are. You're going to be spending a lot of time in there. You want to make sure you can properly see things and do the work you want to do. If your eyes are tweaking out, <laughs> you're not going to produce good work. His drafter's cabinet is unbelievable. That's a wonderful piece of furniture. Yes. Yeah, definitely. If you don't check out anything from our show notes, definitely check out that one. Flat files are are amazing. Amazing pieces of furniture if you can find one. They're very expensive. There's also plenty of them out there. You know, once again, companies getting rid of stuff. They're going paperless, and so why do we need this flat file? See, and I, I think the period for getting these things cheap was about 10 years ago. When, just as you said, companies still had a whole bunch of prints on hand. And versus metal cabinets. I mean, the metal version of this is everywhere. Companies always have those. Whereas the nice wood flat cabinets were very rare. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, but they're, they're still, they're still out there. You know, if you keep your eye out and if you see one, grab it. Wow. That's gorgeous. Yeah. The milk curtains is, oh man, it's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely, definitely check this link out in our show notes. This, This guy's got a really nice setup. I'd love to have it. Uh, I'd also love to have a basement, but North Carolina soil does not lend itself to basements. So I'm unhappy about that. I'll build one myself. Is that only an upper Midwest thing? Uh, I don't know. We had one in Buffalo. They were everywhere. Our basement's pretty prevalent uh, in the West, South, and in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> Basements yeah, are, are generally very prevalent in cold areas. There are a couple of exceptions because, like in the area we live in, Brian, um, when you're building a house, you have to dig down practically far enough to build a basement anyway. So why don't you go the extra two feet and put a basement in? Yeah, you have to be below the frost line. Yep. So you're practically for a basement anyway. Um, you know where Carmen is, you don't have to do that to get to get uh, deep enough for a uh, good. Friends. Yeah. A- any house down here that says it has a basement, it's because it's like on a hill. So like the there's like a weird. It's like a walkout. Yeah. Well, if any of our uh, European listeners can let us know, I'd be interested to know if those are prevalent in Europe. But uh, that's where everything happens in America, you know, be it from building electronics to brewing beer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, basement is, is, yeah. Basement in the garage. Yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll throw uh, something out here before we move on to electrical equipment. Um, you know, we, we mentioned drills before, Jeff's ancient drill and everything, but a drill and an impact driver is I love my impact driver once I started using it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've used it to put together Ikea furniture, you know, instead of mess around with the tiny little Allen wrench that they give you or, you know, 
better still, but not quite awesome, is using a, a proper Allen wrench. You know, you just with an impact driver, it's really hard to strip something, and it'll it'll put together an IKEA or flat pack uh, furniture in no time. The melanine holds up to your uh, impact driver. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to have a, a bit of a light touch on the the trigger, but it works real well. And this is one of those things where it, maybe if you're buying your first set of equipment, you don't need it right away. Um, you can get – there's a, a one from Milwaukee, which at least in my personal opinion, you could start Flame Wars all over the internet. is a very good brand to buy. Um, you can get a kit and it's got the drill and the impact driver and it, they're sold right together in a nice carrying case. And that usually goes on sale during uh, you know Christmas or Father's Day or one of those tool buying holidays. Yeah, both both the Milwaukee version and the rigid version, which I believe is the Home Depot um, in-store brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I I got my rigid impact driver drill combo, like Carmen was talking about, for about a hundred bucks. Yeah, I think it's normally like one sixty or something there on Amazon. So yeah, you can go about half price yeah. at least during the holidays if you wash for it. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, also, you know, I, I mentioned getting one of those kits. I'm looking to get one as well, but I don't know if I'd use it enough to pay for it yet. But what I have is the uh, the bolt-on system from Craftsman. And what that is, is it's a 20-volt, um, you know, drill. But you can pop off the drill head and put on an impact driver or I have an, a, a compressor to do my car tires or whatever else needs inflating. And they, they sell various attachments, you know, an oscillating multi-tool, uh, circular saw there's a ton of stuff and it's it's one of those where if you're a professional and you're building houses or running a you know pit crew at a race car you know event you will probably not want this but if you're working from home you have limited space you don't need all these tools all the time it's a great trade-off for me it's worked perfectly for everything i've ever needed it for and uh that seems to be the general consensus on the internet if you look at any of the reviews is yeah, if you're just the weekend warrior like we're calling ourselves right now, you don't need anything more. And it's 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 a good uh, good kit. It starts eighty ish, hundred dollars, depending on if it's on sale or not, to get going. And then the attachments are usually about thirty. So you buy what you need, and it works out for me so far. Hmm. Me too. And it, I've heard that uh, it's also compatible. That it was one. Uh, I forget the tool brand is DeWalt or Black and Decker makes a very similar system and it, it's actually compatible, at least with the tools. I don't know about the batteries, but the tools will um will will fit in between them too. Well, there's been so much consolidation inside of that industry. I I mean I wouldn't be surprised if well, is DeWalt owned by Black and Decker at this point? I don't know, but whoever it was like also made tools for craftsmen too, so I'm not surprised that uh you know it's compatible with the bolt on system. Yeah, craftsman for the most part is just a rebadging. Yeah, DeWalt is owned by Black and Decker now. Yeah, cool. Hmm. So so we've talked about the mechanical stuff where if you want to work on cars or your house itself. Um how about if you guys are doing uh electronics work at home? Well hold on. Uh, you also need a bridge port. <laughs> oh yeah. If you're if you're gonna do mechanical stuff, you gotta have a bridge port for your home lab. Just take up the whole garage with one of those bad boys. Wire I mean, in, Jeff's gotta agree. Wire in two forty volts, three phase. Mm-hmm. 
if so if you enjoy doing the machining absolutely mm-hmm. but that's a lot of that's a lot of equipment a lot of space that if you know uh they you know we were talking about the average drill gets used for 14 minutes or something well if you don't have a lot of work you're going to you're going to spend a lot of time and money getting that that mill set up you don't want to just let it sit there so if if this is something that you really know how to run and you know how to use on a regular basis and you enjoy it absolutely otherwise there are, at least in here in the midwest there tend to be a lot of machine shops still around and it yeah you have to pay a, a dollar or 7 <laughs> or sometimes 700 uh, depending on what you're wanting to machine but but it's 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 worth it not to have to uh to sweep around that mill every time you clean out the garage reminding yourself what have, you know what toy have you gotten sounds like we're, <laughs> sounds like we're pretty divided i think we should get chris gamble on here and talk about how much he uses his mill <laughs> uh, to, to, par- to paraphrase jeff uh everyone needs a bridge port I don't think that's exactly what I said, but okay, we can go with that. <laughs> um, so I, I'm going to throw out an opinion here, kind of um, that I think I might get a little con- a little op- opposition in, but I think power cords are um, underrated by most people. You know, you guys were talking about a lot of these cordless drills and drill driver sets. To be honest, if if in my opinion, if you're looking, if you don't own a drill and you need a drill, get one with a cord. Really? Because you're never going to be out of battery power. Second drill, get a cordless. But I think that first first drill should have a cord because you, unless the power goes out, your battery's not going to go dead. I will add a counterpoint to that, and the mechanical amongst us can correct me. My experience with corded drills, and albeit I have really big ones like my hammer drill, mm-hmm. um, the spinning mass of corded drills is substantially more than cordless drills. So if you're driving screws, it's very difficult to not strip screws with a uh, corded drill. Well, if you had one with a chuck, you could just set it for a lower torque setting, couldn't you? There's no torque settings. Yeah. Uh, uh, some it, of them do. Yeah. Some of them do because I've never owned one that does. The, the Craftsman Bolt-On's got a whole chuck system or whatever it's called. <laughs> because that's, I mean, that's always been a standout point is you get a lot more finesse if that's an appropriate word for a drill with uh, cordless drills and do a corded. But otherwise your point is a hundred percent correct, Adam. And, and I'll say, I think that's more a, a metric of the size of the drill you have. I mean, I've got my half inch Milwaukee hammer drill and I love that thing. I am not going to even consider trying to drive a screw with it. <laughs> um, that's what I have. Yeah. But I've got um, some, definitely some smaller, mostly a little bit older corded, uh, power drills that are roughly the same size as a um, uh, a cordless drill, and they take a little bit more to, uh, and they do tend to to s- spin, right? Spin fast. Did you say but, your cordless uh, drill you know, is can... the size of a cordless drill? Uh, sorry, corded. Oh, corded okay. is the size of a cordless. I've got definitely some smaller corded drills. Um, you know, a lot of them are are ones I've acquired uh, for free. I mean, and some of these are eh, probably over twenty years old. Um, they, I could drive a screw with it without too much too much difficulty. It, it really? just is the easiest with my cordless. Because um, yeah, it's it just my experience has always been you pull your finger off the trigger and the uh, corded drills always spin another five six times. And I think that's more a matter of the size of the drill than the okay. the cord or not. 
Now, the corded drills do tend to be bigger. Uh, just because most people looking for a corded drill are looking for that, that power. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I love my nine times out of ten I go for my uh, my impact driver or a cordless drill. But um, I would I would not trade in my, my corded drill. Well, and another point to that is corded drills don't change form factor. I've... I've now I'm now old enough to remember at least four different battery form factors, yep. um, all the way back to the Makita, you know Uzi type battery uh, that they used to have. Uh, those you know those uh, the long skinny ones. Yeah, the bottom mounted you know big. Yeah, uh, those 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 are the ones I still have that that won't stay charged anymore. <laughs> they're like thirty years old. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, and you don't have to worry about your batteries not charging with a cordless drill, especially if you're not using it or a corded drill. If you're um, not using it very often, you know, once or twice a year, you're going to have trouble keeping those batteries in decent shape. Or, or replacing them. I mean, which is was kind of my point is yep. the form factor and the voltage and the battery chemistry keep changing, mm-hmm. you know, as battery technology advances very quickly. And, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like each year you cannot get the battery that was in your cordless driver the year before yep i think you guys just need some newer tools my battery stuff holds for a long time when it's just sitting on the shelf i've never that's what we all said about the makita back in the 90s (laughs) yes well batteries have come a long way since the 90s it's not nickel metal hydride or whatever the hell they were they were back in the day oh those were nickel cadmiums nickel cadmium you're right i've got some nickel cadmiums um it'd break them in yeah but, you know, in um, in 25 years, is your drill still going to be – is that battery still going to be decent? Who knows? But by then, I won't even have it anymore because I'll have the uh, Mr. Fusion put some garbage in and, uh, you know, 1.21 gigawatts will drive my deck screws. It's not, <laughs> it's not October 2015 yet. Not yet, no. But we're talking 25 years from now. So, there's probably going to be even smaller Mr. Fusion. <laughs> well, the nickel cadmium batteries will always be able to – Poison a well if you need to. <laughs> yep. Uh, so, anyways, if we move on to home electronics, do you guys have any, uh, you know, tools that you do use on a budget? I do have a Rigel scope, Ooh. and that is good enough for almost anything that I even do professionally. Um, but uh, I still wish I had better. <laughs> Well, everybody wants the fancier toys, but yeah, the, the Rigel and other off-brand electronics equipment, you know, it's perfect for home stuff. It's what, probably what, 50, 70 megahertz? Uh, bandwidth or? Bandwidth, yeah. Or, uh, yeah, something like that. Um, you know, is Rigel still at this point off-brand? I, I almost consider uh, them to be, you know, where tech was maybe 30 years ago. I mean, off-brand and that you'd never I, – I don't know about you guys, but I've never seen a Rigel scope in a professional lab environment. It's always – if they, someone just needs a cheap scope for knocking around, it's always one of those, you know, shoebox-sized tech ones. It depends if you have a lab that requires calibration. That's true. And my lab and the kind of work I do does not. And, uh, you know, we have a mixture of tech and my – I bring in my own Rigel scope because, you know, I don't want to fight other people for equipment. 
Gotcha. See, I don't have to worry about bringing in my own scope at work. We've got enough for everybody to have their own, but we're also a a chip manufacturer, so everybody kind of needs their own. Yeah, you have to hold your pinky up in the air as you say that. <laughs> yeah, so so it separates the uh, you know the Rigel and the what I'm calling off-brand electronics from your tech, your Agilent, your Lacroix, um, or sorry, Keysight, not Agilent, um, is the the inner guts. You know, and instead of having full custom ASICs and you know top of the line DACs and whatnot for acquiring the signal and processing it, um, they're using off-the-shelf parts. You know, some big FPGA or DSP chip. And, uh, you know, still, still high end DAX, not your dime a dozen DAX, but not, not quite the top of the line there. So it kind of brings the lower end of the oscilloscope up rather than, you know, top down type approach. I actually, I haven't looked at tech's website recently. Um, but it seems like they don't even have competitive projects for, you know, the, the Rigo low end. No, did they, um, I remember this from the amp hour of it. Well, I'll say two years ago, but that's that's could be X number of years ago, where they said they were announcing some DIY line of scope, and instead of being four hundred dollars or whatever to compete with Rigel, it was like fifteen hundred, which is asinine. Yeah, somebody could afford that for their home lab, but if you're going to spend fifteen hundred, just get a better scope. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, and it's not DIY. I mean, if you're if you're working below a gigahertz. You should be able to buy a scope for under five hundred bucks, mm-hmm. and that, that's right where this Rigel price point comes in. For a, a fifty meg, four channel scope is a hundred bucks, and it's got a pretty nice screen. Uh, what is it? The DS to one thousand Z or whatever it's called, or DS ten fifty four Z. And mm-hmm. Rigel still has the unofficial hack that you can find online to unlock the hundred megahertz bandwidth, so you can save whatever it is a hundred to two hundred dollars. So, so let me throw this out. So uh, you guys are, are electrical engineering professionals. You know how to use these tools. And uh, uh, I grew up, my dad was an amateur radio operator. And so he had lots of radio gear. And, you know, uh, so oscilloscopes were not unfamiliar to me. But, you know, for just general household maintenance, you don't need a scope. I mean, if you get a good no, multimeter. No, no, comes no. A, a scope would be a poor idea for home yeah, work. you'd have to be into electronics already instead mm-hmm. of trying to fix your gutters. Right. So so uh, for those who maybe aren't quite into uh, into the electronics hobbyist realm, when do you need a scope? When when do you move from a multimeter just isn't going to cut it anymore? Well, it depends. So you want to so the one thing a multimeter will do that a scope won't is general continuity testing. Mhm. Um so but that's generally a different place. Um, yeah. If you want rough measurements, you know, RMS voltage, DC voltage, current, etc., you use a DMM. And if you want to measure continuity or, or any form of impedance, use a DMM. But if you want to see the signal over time, generally you use a scope, which yeah. for most home applications, you don't care. Right. Uh, even um, so, most home maintenance but also even most home hacking stuff you don't care you just if my power rails are five volts you're fine or 3.3 yeah and you're just Um, checking to make sure your led blinks or your light switch turns on from your iot light switch or whatever right so so does the scope so again tell me where the scope comes in handy at what point of becoming an electrical hobbyist uh 
uh, do you need it? You know, obviously, you can run a, a 555 timer and you can attach it to a light. And if you're running at, you know, very slow frequencies, a, a fraction of a hertz or a couple of hertz, you can see that blinking. You start getting up, you know, into 100 hertz, you're not, it's going to look like it's on all the time. So at what point do you need a scope? So what I would say the most common thing that uh, somebody who's getting into electronics or doing electronics at home would be, I am writing a value to my spy port on whatever processor you're using. How do you know the value is actually getting there? And so you'd, you'd basically edge trigger on either rising edge or falling edge of whatever signal and, you know, set a break point before you send that value, send the value, and then make sure that it appears in the scope as you would expect. Okay. And, and before you get too far, so uh, a spy port is SPI. What does that stand for? Serial peripheral interface, I believe. All okay. right. And As, yeah. Yes. Yeah, you are. Okay. And, and so in, this would be a port for communicating if you had, say, an Arduino or some, uh, you know, a Raspberry Pi or you had some board and you're, you're communicating with a, an accelerometer or a, some, you know, a temperature yes. measuring device or something. This is a means of communicating. Any board level I see is, is probably either going to be SPI, UART, or not even UART anymore, or I squared C. Yeah. So one of the common uh, projects I see online a lot is people doing, um, watering systems for their, you know, gardens or whatever with an Arduino or some kind of microcontroller doing, uh, you know, being the brains of the project. And if you're trying to interface with your moisture sensor and you want to make sure you're actually sending the right commands to it or even mm -hmm. any commands at all, that's about when you would start needing a scope. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and even then, you know, we're, we're talking that we just jumped right to Rigel, which is about a $400 investment or, you know, you can also buy you know, something you see off eBay or whatever, an old tech or whatever, but there's still a whole, we could probably do an episode just on small USB scopes. Um, you know, if you're just looking to see a waveform, is something going, you know, basic decoding, you know, is that high, low, high or low, high, low, you, you still don't even need 50 megs of bandwidth. You can get. So, so if you're doing this communication across an I squared C or SPI uh, port, what kind of bandwidth do you really need? 20 megahertz or less. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, unless you're doing some, you know, analog stuff, you you might even that would be pushing it for home use for 50 megahertz. You'd have to be doing some ham radio stuff to need more, I would think. Or yeah, super I'm, super long traces that you wouldn't do for cost or prohibitive reasons. Yeah, but if you're getting into projects like that on the regular, you probably know enough to know that you need, you know. Oh, I would think it's the exact opposite. You don't know what you're. I mean. Yeah, I'll leave that one right there. Uh, <laughs> you could probably make a case for anything. I'll share anecdotes after we get offline. But um, well, one tool I'd recommend, and if you know this works really well, it, it's cheap, especially if you uh, are a student or know someone who can use their student discount. Um, the Digilent Analog Discovery uh, USB Lab or whatever they call it. Um, I actually have one of these. It's sitting right next to me, and it you know. You, cordless drills only get used 14 minutes a year or whatever that stat was. Um, <laughs> I think it's 14 minutes in their lifetime, but... So mine is way more than that, but anyways. <laughs> one minute a year. I, I don't need a, an oscilloscope at home more than, you know, a couple times a year when I finally find some free time to uh, goof off with a cool circuit I saw online. And th this is pretty much all I need. So what it is is a little... Uh, a little black box about the size of a deck of cards, maybe a little bit bigger. And it just from USB from my computer to the box plugs in 
and a virtual instrument panel shows up on my computer and there's a, a logic analyzer. So you can, you know, monitor a spy or I squared C or parallel bus right there as eight, 16 channels. I'm not going to count it on the air. Um, mm-hmm. there's a basic oscilloscope on there. I think it's got 10 or 20 megahertz bandwidth. It's got a five volt supply on it and a nice little voltmeter and it, and a function generator, a basic function generator. And it, it's perfect for what I need it for. And it's now supported by MATLAB, so you can run your $160 instrument with $3,000 worth of software. <laughs> well, if it's supported by MATLAB, it means you could probably hack it in Python, too. Someone sure has. I'm sure has. <laughs> um, yeah, and EEV blog, Dave Jones, uh, he, he gave it a, a pretty decent review when he looked it over a little while ago on episode 692. Now, while this is a unique case, and I, I actually like this piece of kit, Um I do not recommend most USB scopes yes. for people. I was going to say that. And if you watch any of Dave's videos, you'll know a lot of them are garbage. Um, yeah. It's a good way to destroy a computer, actually, depending upon how they handle their isolation and grounding. Yeah. This is, it's worth the, instead of spending 50 or $60 for, I can't even think of what the name of the super cheap ones are, any of those ones in that price range. So you spend 100 to $200, if, depending on if you can get the student discount and get this one. It's one of the better rated ones. Yeah, mm-hmm. and if you need anything more than this, go to a Rigoscope. Yeah. Because um, there's always somebody saying that, oh, USB scopes are going to be coming around the corner and be just as good as regular scopes. Man, they've been saying that for 15 years. Oh, yeah, this one, this one's definitely not. It doesn't even use real probes for the oscilloscope. You know, the, the BNC with the little clippies that yeah. everybody's used to. It's just... Uh, a wire with a, you know, pin header on it that you shove into a breadboard. But oh. when all I'm doing is hacking on a, a breadboard with an Arduino or I wired up some little op amp circuit, that that's fine for me. I'm not trying to measure nanosecond rise times or anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- this one here has actually got a nice, uh, I like it because I do some analog work, but uh, one of the things on it is a Bode plot tool right out of the box. So you set up the function generator and uh, mm-hmm. on the input and put the scope probe on the output and the Bode plot control panel, you know, says sweep a sine wave this big from X frequency to Y frequency with this many points per decade. And it gives you a Bode plot. Is it going to be as good as a dynamic signal analyzer or a spectrum analyzer? Mm-hmm. No, not even close. But, you know, when I want to see if my low, fa- low pass filter is low pass shaped, it's <laughs> that's fine for me. Mm hmm. So if I am a um, so if I work on my yard and I need to to use an edger, I don't have to own an edger. I can go rent one from one of the big box stores or or their local tool stores. I can do that from. If you want to rent a scope, is that possible? Yes, well, but you generally have to be a pretty big company in order to do it. <laughs> yes, okay. yeah, yeah. If you're in a professional setting, they will loan you anything. And actually, I'm going to get a tool on loan uh, this week, which I'm very excited for. A very fancy pulse yeah, generator. There's there's companies that are basically set up to lease you equipment like that. Uh, stuff like if you need a $100,000 spectrum analyzer, but you only need it for a couple measurements. I mean, it doesn't make any sense for you to buy that tool, but it would make sense to rent it for a week or two at, you know, $100 or $1,000 a week, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you... 
if you need a scope once in a while and you don't want to buy a USB and if you're not going to do that, you definitely don't need a Rigel, but you still want to play around occasionally, you, you'd have to look around for your local, you know, makerspace or hackerspace and hopefully they have an oscilloscope there for you to use. <laughs> that would be, okay. I think, your best option for a home DIY to rent an oscilloscope is pay your membership dues and go to the hackerspace. <laughs> right. Oh, you're 100% right there. Or go on eBay. Yeah, you can probably you can probably get into a cheap analog analog scope for the shipping cost effectively for you know something from the seventies or early eighties. And if That's you what I've got. if you were to do that, is there anything to watch out for? Do you have to worry about you know capacitors going bad or or? Well, they're all bad anyway. Probably, so don't worry but about it. you're going to get what you pay for in that case. You know, if you're getting a you know. 100 meg or 200 meg oscilloscope from 1979 or 1982, you know, you mm-hmm. it, it might not be not calibrated. Yeah, it's not going to be <laughs> calibrated. It could definitely have something wrong. Um, I mean, go to go to the signal path. Half his videos are buying equipment on eBay and fixing it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it could work out. And yeah, for 150 bucks, you could get a steal of an oscilloscope. But uh, you could also be spending more time troubleshooting the scope than what you actually wanted to work on. But then again, also going back to the example we gave earlier where you're, you know, simply looking for a pulse train coming out of a um, I.O. port of some kind, you don't generally care about, you know, how accurately it's measuring the levels as long as you get a relative measurement. You know, mm-hmm. you can tell relative to ground it moved, you know, a volt or two as opposed to not moving at all. Or supposed to be in a rail that uh, five volts or three point three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely with this stuff. Um, yeah, you're not going to get the picovolt precision or anything like that. Right. And generally, I would stay stay away from the. Uh, oh man, what is the one they have on Spark Fund? The DSO. Oh, the DSO Nano. Yeah, that looks like crap. I don't know. I'm sure there's reviews on their free EV blog. Um, yeah, definitely do your homework if you're buying this off-brand electrical equipment and make sure it's at least quasi-reputable. You know, everyone's going to tell you, you know, it's only good for X, Y, and Z, not professional level. But if you're not at that level, that's fine. Weren't those only 200, 200 kilohertz bandwidth? or I don't know. But yeah, just to, to reemphasize the, uh, you know, you get what you pay for um, aspect of it. The uh, the web one website I found recently, Analog Zoo, um, he f- bought a very cheap function generator, you know, the MHS fifty two hundred A, and he noticed that it it wasn't even meeting the specs they were putting on the data sheet, and so he's got a couple series of videos um, where he goes through and he goes through and shows you what's on the circuit board, how they implemented this, um, what he thinks the problem is, and then you know, goes through and troubleshoots it with listener feedback and actually has a fix for it. So to improve it and get better performance than he was getting before, um, changing a few capacitors and an op amp. And it, it's pretty mm-hmm. cool. So if you are really into electronics, you know, that's one thing you could go and do. Um, but just, yeah, take note when you buy, you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. And so with the move, if you, so if you are a hobbyist and you decide you want to start doing your own, say, printed circuit boards. Uh, uh, the, on the amp hour, they were recently talking about uh, not worrying about the uh, acid etching anymore. You might as well send the boards out because the services are so cheap to do those. 
Um, but if you're if you're starting to work with that, everything's moving to surface mount. Everything's getting smaller. The, the you know it used to be that uh, the TTL voltage was five volts, and then we moved to CMOS, and it was three point three volts. And now things are going down to one point one volt and smaller voltages. And are we getting to the point where uh, as as everything gets smaller, you also have to have more precise instrumentation? That is, you need a more precise scope, or is the stuff from the seventies plenty good for any kind of hobby board building? Everything that we've just said is uh, applicable across most footprints that somebody at home could work with. Mm -hmm. I mean, most people at home aren't going to be using BGAs. Um, BGAs being? Ball grid arrays. Instead of having having leads or like a dip package or a SOT. Quad fly pack. Whatever, yeah. Um, It's just little balls of solder underneath the chip and that they go directly into the silicon and grab onto whatever portion of the circuit they're supposed to grab onto and bring it to the board. It's the mm-hmm. very low co- or very low PCB area method of applying a chip to the board. So if you look at most mobile technologies like an iPhone or an Android phone um, teardown, it's almost all BGAs and LGAs uh, for virtually every IC that's on the board. Um, whereas most industrial people will shy away from BGAs because the manufacturing processes would almost require you have access to like x-ray equipment or, you know, fancy have built-in boundary. And, yeah. Yeah. Built-in boundary scan capability, et cetera. Yeah. Unless you're living in the Bay area where you can maybe find that stuff on the cheap, cheap being <laughs> relative here. Um. <laughs> well, I mean, we, there's, there's probably four or five houses in the twin cities that'll do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just a, there's a comfort aspect to it. It's difficult to convince management to um, to do it. I've actually worked oh, in oh, places you're talking that about have assembly houses. I thought you were talking about actual people that'll build it in their backyard. Oh yeah, no. I mean, people who are. I mean, there are people who build them in their backyards, but they are very special. Oh yeah, there's people who do everything in their backyards, but yeah, there's people who are doing wire bonding, you know, for yeah. RF high high end RF equipment, but. Um, you know, even if you're doing it in a professional setting, you know, if if you have a cracked ball or something, it's very difficult to tell that just one or more of your boards don't work. Uh-huh. And if you are only doing a one or two board prototype run just to validate a design and one of them doesn't work, it's a big deal. Right. So that's uh, oftentimes people avoid BGAs for those reasons. But, uh, you know. QFNs actually have finer pitch and are kind of a bigger pain in the ass to solder, if you ask me. But uh, yeah, I'd also like to point out, Jeff, too, that everything you were saying about surface mount and smaller voltages and everything—they um, mm-hmm. they were saying that back in the '70s and '80s with the you know the, the quote True. unquote death of analog and the switch to surface mount and you know, I mean the the Arduino Uno they had I got sitting next to me that's still that's still five volt logic, um, right? Yeah, you know, that's that's still plenty, plenty or easily enough in the realm of the home user as it was meant to be, and yeah, you know, that's still going strong. And I'm also at the point where, and it, it may be where I entered the professional workspace. I'm more comfortable with surface mount devices than I am with um, through hole components. Agreed. Same here. Yeah. Although we're now, I know that's not universal. Yes, but. 
it's, you know, I actually get kind of freaked out by bending pieces of metal coming out of a, you know, package, like mm-hmm. a plastic package. Like, you know, am I going to build, am I going to exceed the maximum bend radius in this? And, you know, am I going to screw up the connection inside of the package and not know it? Yeah. You know, I'll even chime in as the, uh, the civil engineer who, who's played with electronics at home. And, and I've, you know, I've done the Ash Park thing and I taught myself to solder and all that stuff. Um, I like surface mount. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not dealing with little tiny, par- tiny parts like you guys are, but, um, I'd rather deal with a, a, a surface mount part and surface mount than, um, dealing with like, yeah. The- mm-hmm. And trying to get those leads figured out, and figure out how many times I'm going to stab myself on the <laughs> cut myself. And yeah, you you can do surface mount, yeah. Jeff, without doing the tiny little you know size of a you know pixel on your screen resistors that you see all over the iPhone uh, and laptop teardowns and stuff. If you're doing a home board, a one off, you can throw on twelve oh six, and you can eyeball those eight oh four, six oh threes, oh four oh twos. Yeah. Well, yeah, 1206, so 12 mils by 6 mils. One of those, if you're just doing a home project, throw that mm-hmm. on there. That I'd even argue, you know, once you get a set of tweezers and a, a soldering iron, that's easier to solder than a through-hole resistor that you have to put through the holes, tape mm-hmm. down, flip over, solder it down, cut the leads. With a 1206, you can do it in a third of the time, not even. Yep, and at least one side of your board, you don't have anything sticking out the bottom mm-hmm. when you're soldering it together so it, it, you can hold it better and... Yeah, yeah. Just because it's surface mount doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean it's out of the realm of DIY and home stuff. Mm-hmm. And actually, a good hack for those who don't do a whole lot of that is uh, buy some low temp solder paste and DigiKey, uh, that bismuth based stuff, which hasn't been yet to found can- uh, to cause cancer. Um, <laughs> do you say that because you think it may someday be? No, it's just everything causes cancer, and this stuff is. The stuff is so awesome that I can't imagine it doesn't cause cancer. <laughs> so uh, it melts at a significantly lower temperature. And if mm-hmm. if anyone has ever done really fine pitch stuff, it's almost next to impossible to do by hand with a solder iron. That stuff is amazing. Little small QFNs with uh, with thermal pads in the middle. It's really the only way to do it in a lab. And mm-hmm. uh that's where instead of getting the hot air rework station, you just get the ACE hot air gun and, you know, heat the board till it's just about smoking and you probably have a good solder connection. <laughs> I'd also like to add too, Jeff, that, um, you know, you can still do BGA stuff when you're doing a DIY thing. There's so many modules out there from SparkFun and Adafruit and a million other people I'm probably forgetting and not mentioning that plug into the Arduino, you know, and Arduino compatible shield is a big thing right now. And Mm. you could use some fancy latest, you know, QFN package or BGA or whatever it is chip that needs impedance mass traces, whatever. But if you buy it on a module and you're just snapping it together, doing your home tinkering or whatever, then you just need the, you know, basic tools we've been talking about today. And the hard work's been taken care of by, you know, a company that does it for a living. Mm-hmm. And there, there's still plenty of value in all that. Um, you know, you can get as deep as you want to, obviously. That's very true. And for the most part, uh, the um, drills necessary to do BGA components exclude most people from doing Osh Park or anyone cheap for that matter. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're talking about making your own PCB boards and stuff. But if you just have a one-off electronics project to water your garden mm-hmm. or something, you might not want to, you know, pay for a PCB and learn all that CAD software. If you can fit, you know, a few of the snap-together modules, check it out real quick on your uh, your scope, make sure it's working, put it in a box. Mm-hmm. That It's a one-off for your house. You know, it doesn't have to be on a PCB. It could be, you know, wires in a box. Right. You know, just don't take it to school and tell them it's a clock. <laughs> Yes, and investigate wire wrapping. That that is still awesome if you know how to do it. I don't know when you'd have it used for it these days, but yeah, could come in handy, I guess. If you got a whole box full of dip components or uh, through hole components, it's perfect. True, true. All right, guy. Well, I'll, I just want to say one thing. Uh, before we start wrapping it up here, you know, we were talking about sure. the differences, Jeff, you said between a, a basic multimeter and a, um, an oscilloscope, a, a multimeter. Right. I mean, unless you get the absolute bottom of the barrel, Harbor Freight free with coupon multimeter, um, you know, a multimeter will be able to check your, uh, your power line or your mains voltages at the outlets and make sure you're getting 120 there. Whereas right. an oscilloscope, I would not recommend doing at all unless you have some very specialized equipment that you probably wouldn't have in a DIY lab. Yeah. As, as well as the multimeter is a little more portable usually, isn't it? Oh, yeah, for sure. If you um, need to go upstairs in the attic and check your voltage, it's, it's not convenient to lug the oscilloscope upstairs. No, no, not unless you've got some really specialized task you want to use for it. <laughs> um, yeah, don't ever hook you, especially your USB multi or USB uh, oscilloscopes and multimeters. Don't ever put those in the outlets. That's that's no good. That's a good way to start a fire and break your computer. Right. So covering our butts there for safety. You know, we, we only make so much ad money here with our zero ads. We can't afford lawyers. <laughs> Right. All right. Well, you guys have anything uh, you want to mention before we start wrapping it up here? Not me personally. Oh, um, when it comes to electronics, there's also the option for some equipment of uh, building it yourself. Um, I built my own uh, bench power supply. And there, there's other things like that. Um, you know, Dave Jones at the EEV blog built uh, uh, decade resistor boxes and... Uh, you know, those things like that. And that's that's definitely an option for uh, cheap. It's not going to be calibrated, but does the job. Yeah. I even think there's a um, – you can buy a kit for an oscilloscope from Adafruit or Sparkfront, one of them. And, yeah, it's, you know, the USB-type oscilloscope we've been talking about. But it's a good way to learn about the internals and start getting a feel for the, uh, you know, the world of electronics and how that test equipment's put together. Mm-hmm. Perfect for DIY, which is the whole point of this whole thing. Right. I guess the, the, uh, the other tools that I use a lot are, uh, I have a, uh, electric, uh, it's not a radial arm saw. I guess it'd be a, a miter saw that, uh, is useful. And, and I'm always building stuff in wood. You know, I'm rarely welding stuff up and machining it. But, but if I need a little something, a little table, a little, a little post, a little stand, I'm always knocking that out in wood. Um, and the other thing is a, uh, some sort of vacuum system. Uh, I run this vacuum system to help suck down the, the sawdust in the, uh, in the garage, but it's also awful handy for uh, just cleaning up stuff around, uh, around the garage, the dirt and other debris that seems to gather in there. So I find the vacuum system pretty handy. Oh, yeah. My shop vac's paid for itself numerous times over. Yep. Yeah. Those, yeah. those are handy. 
one of those wet dry vacs, and that's a good one to look for too on uh, Black Friday as well. And they and they do suck up water. I've had a few occasions <laughs> when I needed it, and they they will do that. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, a Salzol or um, what's the official non trademark name? Reciprocating saw. Reciprocating saw. Yeah. Um, I have a Salzol, uh, and that thing is is uh, crazy useful. Everything from you know demo in the house to I need to cut this piece of steel bar mm-hmm. to um, trimming trees. Yeah. The, the the last time I used a Sawzall, I borrowed one from a friend, but I cut down the the backboard, the old rusting out uh, basketball goal uh, post pole that was in next to the driveway. And the previous owner had filled that pole, that post with concrete. So the saw, I, mm-hmm. I wasted the Sawzall blade, but it cut through the, through the steel and through the concrete and uh, lopped it off good. So perfect yeah well hopefully we've given everybody uh a few items to add to their shopping list and uh maybe their wish list and hopefully they'll get it someday fantastic i'm gonna go outside and organize my screwdrivers now (laughs) (laughs) well if if you find a spare weekend and you want some more to do you're free to come over to my my garage and straighten up all right you provide the beer I can do that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when you're done with his, you can come over to mine. <laughs> I'll just start road trip and organizing garages all up and down the all up and down the U.S. Like Johnny Appleseed, but with a different name <laughs> for tools. All right. Well, if anybody has anything else that they like to use at home that they find invaluable, let us know. We'll throw it in the show notes. Um, and as always, if you have any feedback, let us know. Sounds good. All right. Take it easy, guys. Good evening. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson. 